God in heaven, it is out of trust in your powerful presence within us that we can gather here, trusting that you are ready to move even on Zoom. We've already seen you do that the past several months, and we're ready for, we expect even more of that to come. And so we pray that you be with me in the words that I preach and be with all of us in our hearts to have be receptive and open to whatever you want to do with us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. See if your boy knows how to share the screen again. Still getting it down here. Good. Can you see that now? Thumbs up, Nick. Good. Praise God. So we're in our third uh, message of our Foundations of a Healthy Church series, Marching Through Philippians, the first five or so sermons of Philippians, just going through chapter one, beginning of chapter two. We see that Paul uh, kind of outlines some of his foundations for a healthy church. He's just writing to the church in Philippi to bring them encouragement, to tell them of his love for them. But as we see him doing that, we see the things that are important to Paul some key practices and key theology of, of his um, that kind of tease out some of the things that are the most important for a church to be healthy. And so let's read from Philippians 1 verses 12 through 18 to talk about another foundation today, which is the primary goal and mission and job of the church. Let's read uh, verse 12. I want you to know, beloved, that what has happened to me has actually helped to spread the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is for christ and most of the brothers and sisters having been made confident in the lord by my imprisonment dare to speak the word with greater boldness and without fear some proclaim christ from envy and rivalry but others from goodwill those these proclaim christ out of love knowing that i have been put here for the defense of the gospel the others proclaim christ out of selfish ambition not sincerely, but intending to increase my suffering and imprisonment. What does it matter? Just this, that Christ is proclaimed in every way, whether out of false motives or true, and in that I will rejoice. And so the main emphasis Paul's having here is how important proclaiming the gospel is, that proclaiming the gospel is the primary part job of the church. What is causing Paul to rejoice so much is that the gospel message is announced. And so I want to uh, highlight and kind of go through the text to show why this is so important to him and then just talk about what it is about the gospel that's so powerful and what does it look like to make that the primary job of the church. So the church may engage in so many of the things. We pray, we gather in small groups, we feed the homeless, we uh, are champions for the marginalized, we love one another, we cultivate healthy marriages, we pursue the truth. But I want to make the argument that those are not just kind of scattered things that are all on the same level that are important to us, but rather all of those things are outcomes of the gospel being announced and working in our hearts. And not only the outcomes of that, but they help the gospel be proclaimed more accurately and effectively all the more. So the premier job of the church is to communicate the gospel to the world. That's the job. So let's break it down how Paul gets us there together. So he says, I want you to know, beloved, that what has happened to me has helped spread the gospel. This alone is a sermon in itself, and I thought about going this direction when I first read this, that a theme throughout the whole Bible is that we have a God who brings surprising good outcomes to horrendous circumstances. The climax of that theology is, of course, in the resurrection when God himself was killed on the cross and yet was able to conquer that death and be raised from the grave. And so here's a, a situation where Paul is in horrendous circumstances, 
and yet he is about to celebrate that still good things have come from it. And the particular good thing that has come from this circumstance is that the gospel has been spread. And so what is the horrendous thing that has happened to him? It is that he is in prison. Verse 13, that he is in prison here. And so being in prison, you know, obviously has, is terrible to be confined, to have your freedom taken away, usually in terrible conditions. In the first century, what was added to that even more than what we would be, would be experienced in our culture is a sense of shame, where there's a social cur- currency of a limited amount of honor to go around within a community. And if you do things that can bring embarrassment on you, it brings kind of a shame toward you and toward anyone associated with you. And so being in prison would bring shame on Paul and anyone associated with him, which would be all the more reason for Paul to despair. He cannot lead churches well if churches have a a sense of shame for being associated with him. And yet, even in the face of that kind of despair and potentially horrendous outcomes of being in prison, Paul is rejoicing that the gospel is still getting out. And so it's spreading by his imprisonment in two ways that I want to draw out to you. So first in verse 13, he says, it has become known, the gospel, throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else uh, that my imprisonment is for the gospel. So how is it becoming known among the imperial guard? These are actually non-Christian people who work for and are associated with the Roman prison system, who are soldiers, who are not faithful people, who by accident are sharing the gospel just by virtue of sharing about this new person that is in prison for going around saying that uh, Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, is now Lord of the universe. So they're basically accidentally spreading the content of the gospel by trying to mock Paul for why he is in prison. And why would soldiers be interested in why this guy, this random guy, happens to be in prison for what he's calling spreading the gospel? It's because the gospel, just like the word Lord, which I shared in the West Weekly, has significant political overtones. The gospel simply means a news that causes great joy or good news. And so there's actually an inscription um, from uh, about 30 years before Jesus died of, uh, f- uh, that describes the, gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus and basically announces how Caesar Augustus became king and all the life and vitality and freedom that has been given to the Roman Empire because of his kingship. And he even is described as a god in that inscription. He's described as a savior. He's described as bringing about peace and safety to the whole empire by having become such a powerful king. And that inscription says that this is the gospel of Caesar Augustus. And so to have someone, not, you know, Rome was imprisoning people all the time, but not many of those being imprisoned were going around describing and announcing a new gospel of a new king. And so those soldiers and people in the imperial guard happen to be interested in that. And so by virtue of bringing mockery and shame onto Paul and confusion, they spread the content of the gospel, just the news of the story. And to be clear, this might be another sermon, but it's worth clarifying. The gospel is not, how can I be saved? How can I get to heaven when I die? How can I be forgiven? The gospel is about Jesus. So it is a story of how God has become king in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. You all just read through Acts last year. Read through all the times those dudes in Acts preach the gospel. They are not saying, here's how you get to heaven when you die. The story is about Jesus becoming Lord 
And of course, an outcome of that, an effect of that is salvation, is forgiveness, is going to heaven. But the gospel is the announcement that Jesus is now king. And that is a rival gospel to the gospel that Caesar is king and has brought about peace and safety to the world. And so the imperial guard's interested and they mock Paul by spreading the gospel. But then the other way the gospel gets spread by Paul's imprisonment is other Christians becoming emboldened and more confident to speak the gospel without fear. And this has become a pattern throughout all of church history that when the church gets pressured and persecution happens, usually the church gets more bold to throw down the gospel. We see that in Acts as well. But that reminds me of a story of a dude named Winsham from my former ministry. He was from China and he came over to University of Cincinnati to study. And um, he came to our small groups and stuff. And I remember picking his brain on his experience in China and whether or not he experienced persecution over there. And he, you know, in broken English described, he was like, yeah, they pushed really hard. But we, what I always found is the harder they pushed, the stronger we got. And I pressed him more to try to see what life was like, what discipleship was like, what was faith like for him. And he kind of mentioned in passing that he copied, hand copied the whole Bible twice by the time he was in middle school. Here's some discipleship training for you. You know, most of our kids watch Paw Patrol and stuff, but my man Winshung was copying uh, the, the whole Bible. But anyway, the point is, Christians get more emboldened when they watch another Christian choose a route of suffering in order to proclaim the gospel. So Paul just said, saying the gospel is being coming known either way. Christians are becoming more bold. Non-Christians are spreading rumors about me, but those rumors happen to be packaged within it, the, the, the verbal contents of the gospel. So he's going to keep teasing this out. So some, that first camp, proclaim Christ from envy and rivalry. Why, why envy? Because they want all the power associated with Caesar being the true king. And so they're rivalrous to hear an announcement of a different king, King Jesus. But others, the Christian folks, from goodwill. These proclaim Christ out of love, knowing that I've been put here out of defense of the gospel. The others, again, the, the people who aren't faithful, are proclaiming Christ out of selfish ambition. They're not being sincere. They're intending to increase suffering in my imprisonment. But for Paul, what does it matter? He says, he celebrates that the story of how Jesus became king is announced either way, even when false motives, and that causes him to rejoice. This rocks me, man, because I feel like I'm more attentive to uh, whether or not Christ is proclaimed accurately by well-meaning, faithful people who reflect Christ well. But Paul's saying, even when Christ is not proclaimed well, even when it is butchered by people who mean ill will, even when it is shared by people who don't even love Jesus or care about the church, it is still worth rejoicing. And so that makes me kind of, that puts me in a place of tension to think like there must be some power in just the verbal story of the gospel. And so that's what I'm going to talk about next, that the verbalized content of the gospel has power. So not so much even just how we live, whether or not we have love, how charitable, charitable we are, whether or not we, we have good character, all that stuff is important, which we'll see next, but that the gospel is just announced in and of itself, it has power, because Paul believes that the story of the gospel is self-correcting, that if people know that story, the more they press into that story, it will correct the abuses that were attached to that story on the way in. 
So if the content of the story of how God became king through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus becomes known to a person in Rome through a soldier who's mocking Paul, they still can walk away contemplating the mysteries of the gospel and how wild it is that the vastness behind all we see and know in this world became a, a baby and then lived a life of a traveling homeless rabbi before being crucified, raised from the dead, and now Lord of the universe. And if you have that content, even in a horrendous package, that is still able to plant a seed in your heart and bring power in your life. We have the best example of that in the history of our country through the black church. That was, uh, they were taught the gospel by slave masters, and yet the gospel has worked in them over the course of hundreds of years to bring about faithfulness and fruitfulness. So let's just unpack some of that here. This is an early catechism for slaves that masters would teach uh, African-American slaves. And so a catechism works where they repeat questions and the people that are learning how to become Christians give answers to those questions. And so this is a catechism for slaves. Who gave you a master and a mistress? God gave them to me. Who says you must obey them? God says that I must. What book tells you these things? The Bible. What makes you lazy? My wicked heart. How do you know your heart is wicked? I feel it every day. This is just one portion of one catechism that white Christian masters gave to the slaves. They communicated the content of the gospel around all this horrendous packaging that was abusive and oppressive and harmful. But yet, those slaves mold over the mystery and the power of the gospel message anyway. And it was able to take roots in their hearts and they mold over the ways in which that gospel message critiqued the very way that they received it. To the point where a former slave, um, Frederick Douglass, was able to say this, what I have said respecting and against religion, I mean strictly to apply to the slave holding religion of this land and with no possible reference to Christianity proper. For between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. I love the pure, peaceable and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt slaveholding, women whipping, cradle plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land. So even while slaves were still in existence, they were able to recognize the truth of the gospel that was presented to them in abusive and oppressive ways. Because the power of the story still has words, even when it's not spoken the best, even when surrounded by horrendous packaging, even when it's collected with uh, malformed character and bad morals and it not in good faith and used as a tool of oppression, the story of the gospel still got out and still did work in them. And they were able to recognize the difference between the true gospel found in the Bible versus the one presented to them to the point where one of my favorite new scholars named Esau Macaulay, he's amazing, wrote this book, Reading While Black and In It. He says, for the African-American Christian, the miracle is the black church born of truly miraculous circumstances and whose witness to Jesus has served as something of a forerunner preparing America to accept a truer and fuller gospel. And we see evidence of that today in faithfulness and fruitfulness of the black church in America. But I just want to say all that to make the point that it is indeed true 
that when the gospel story gets out, even if it's packaged poorly, it is doing powerful things in people. And this gives me great uh, kind of encouragement because if you're like me, most of us feel a great fear in sharing the gospel. We think, man, how, who am I to share this? I don't know what to say. I don't know how to say it. My life is not good enough. I don't want to be scrutinized. I'm probably going to say it in a bad way. And so, so many of us uh, kind of lose the, the, the courage to share the gospel because we think we have to say it perfectly or be perfect in order to share it. But what I see in Paul here is a celebration that if it gets out, God can do work in it. If the story gets communicated, God can still do work in it. And so it should free us up, obviously, not to use and abuse the gospel because we know it has power in it, but to pursue it all the more, knowing that even if we mess up, even if we fail, even if we don't do it right, the story is so powerful in and of itself that somebody will hear it and it will stew in their hearts and it will lead to fruitfulness and life change. And many of you are examples of that because you grew up in churches or in Christian families that were not the best. They were not the most perfect. Your parents made mistakes. Your pastors made bad decisions. And you still, though, heard the gospel through those broken, frail, limited, simple people. And now look at you logging on to Zoom in the middle of this cold, snowy day because you can't get enough Jesus. And so we are all walking evidence that even when the gospel is presented uh, uh, cloaked in frailty and weakness and in sin, uh, it still does work in us. And it's for that reason that uh, the gospel, mercy, my slides ain't coming up, that sharing the gospel is the primary job of the church. This is what we have to offer the world, is the story of how Jesus became king. We may do lots of other things, but telling that news to the world is the very unique and powerful thing we have to offer and it's exactly what the world needs so some of y'all have heard probably this y'all heard this quote preach the gospel at all times when necessary use words and it's often attributed to saint francis of assisi many people love this quote they love this quote because it helps us get out of actually sharing the gospel but you know what i love about this quote one thing i love about this quote is that saint francis of assisi never said it that brother uh, there's no record of him having shared this message, but somehow this is going to be a revelation to y'all. The internet lied to us, you know what I'm saying, by attributing this quote to St. Francis of Assisi. And so I made some changes here to, to this, that it is actually necessary to use words when we preach the gospel, because that is what gives clarity to the world for both the why we do, the positive things we do. So any positive thing we do, we give credit to Jesus. There are many people in the world who have good, enviable marriages. Not all of them do so because they follow Jesus. There are many in the world that do and say nice things, uh, that are kind, charitable people, that are good contributors to society, that have a good character, that don't do it because they love Jesus. And so we uh, do what we do because of who Jesus is. And so it's important to use words to clarify the good that we do. Not only that, it's important to use words in order to clarify the bad that we do. The gospel gives us a way to contextualize our sin and weakness so that even when we share negative things, we get to share Jesus. That's what gives me courage to say sorry to my kids all the time. I feel like I have to apologize to my kids about every day because we're not perfect as parents. 
and we feel the pressure to be perfect as parents in order to raise faithful kids. But we don't because the gospel gives us a way to tell our kids that we're sorry because we get to say to them, you love, you would long for your parents to be perfect and we won't be. But let me tell you about one who is, who will always be there for you. And my job is to point you to Jesus. And so we need our words to both contextualize the negative things in our life and contextualize the positive things in our life. We need to use the words to, uh, to get out to the world. That's what we have to offer the world. So we need to let it be the primary job of the church. And what that means is that we may do lots of things in the church, lots of ministries, lots of groups, lots of little side things, but everything that else the church does is done because it both helps us announce the gospel more accurately and effectively and or is a result of the gospel actually taking root in our lives. And so if we are champions for truth and against lies, it is because we believe the gospel tells the core truth of reality, of what is real, of what is out there in this world, and that it is ruled by a good God who is so good, he became a human being in order to show his love for us, his goodness for us, and to be raised from the dead, and that it is now true, the most fundamental reality we have to offer that King Jesus is now indeed king. And so we are champions for the truth, not because it's separate from the gospel, but because it is a, it feeds into that. We have healthy marriages and are for sexual purity because the way we do marriage and dating and relationships and sex is a reflection of uh, who we are in King Jesus. We tell the story of who God is and how he relates to the church and a permanent and monogamous relationship with us by engaging in and pursuing and promoting exclusive lifelong commitment within marriages. Uh, we are for taking care of the marginalized, not because it is a separate thing than the gospel, but because it is, it is an outflow of the gospel. We reflect that we have a God who died on behalf of and for all the marginalized in the world. And so we care for the poor and we want to be charitable and we want to give our stuff away for the betterment of other people to show the world that that's who and what God has done in Jesus. Um, we do spiritual formation groups and engage in all kinds of spiritual formation because part of the gospel is that a result of Jesus being risen from the dead is an unleashing of the gift of the spirit inside our physical bodies who has promised to bring to life in our dead bodies uh, the life of Jesus and that we are now get to spend our whole life receiving transformation from that spirit who makes us holy by just declaration we are just have a holy status now and he works to bring that holiness out into our lives now and so we engage in that process not because it's something different than the gospel but because it's an outflow of it we pursue racial reconciliation there's a lot of people in the secular world that pursue racial reconciliation for other reasons we do it because we think that heaven is and will be a, a, a filled with vast diversity that Jesus has died for all people and that in his kingdom there is neither slave nor free there's neither Jew nor Greek there's neither black nor white because he has made it possible to break down those walls that tore us apart and gave us the resources to be unified once and for all and so it's not we have the gospel and also we do racial reconciliation it's we preach the gospel and an outflow of that is that we attempt to let the spirit break down those walls that stood between us for hundreds of years and when we do that well we then announce to the world all the better 
of what the gospel is able to do in our lives. And so you can draw a line, a direct line from any ministry the church does and anything you do as a Christian between what that thing is and the announcement of the content of the gospel to the world. And so the real concern here is to privilege that as the primary job, to have that in the front of our minds and always be thinking, how can I connect what I'm doing now to the sharing of the gospel in an accurate and effective way? There are lots of things we could talk about for how to share the gospel and what all that looks like, but this is more uh, a, a sermon about privileging that as our priority. Because I trust when we make that our priority, it will drive our prayer life. God, help me be an instrument of the gospel. Help me to share it accurately and effectively. Give me opportunities to talk about Jesus to my neighbors and let them receive the gospel that you have given to me as well. And I trust that the Spirit will work through those prayers just by virtue of us making it an important thing to us to then uh, he will equip us to do that job, just as he did for Paul's churches. Paul was a, a pastor, a church planner, whose goal was to get the gospel out to the world. And the way he uh, supported churches, every letter he wrote to them was how to help the church tell the gospel better. And so any instruction he gave them, any commandment he gave them was in order for them to be better vehicles of the gospel content to their neighbors. And so we can reflect on that as well. And so the reason why we're even able to even talk about this in the first place is because Christ has died for us and he's risen for us and he has forgiven all of our sin. He's eliminated the barrier between him and us. And in doing so, shockingly, among the most gracious things is not just that he saved us, but that he gave us a job. It wasn't like, I'm not going to destroy you and I'll let you come to heaven with me. It's like, not only that, but I'm now going to count you worthy to be my partners in ministry worthy to come into my inner room and to do business together, worthy to partner with me on this life-changing adventure and mission. One of the hugest needs we have as human beings is to not only, uh, is, to, is to be contributors in this world. And when he gives us this mission, it is a major act of grace to participate in that. And everything we do in life can be drawn to connect to this mission. It gives rich significance to our lives. Thanks be to God for this great and indescribable gift to share in this mission with him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. That in the face of all other proclamations of other would-be kings, um, that you are the premier authority who has made things right who is establishing justice, who is conquering sin, who is making it possible for a, a new family of believers to be formed across all races and, and socioeconomic statuses and everything else. We thank you for the gospel. We pray, God, that you do empower us, that you overcome our limitations, our frailty, our weakness, to be accurate and effective communicators of the word. And when we fail, and we will, we pray that your spirit overcome our weakness and abuses and failures to still let the gospel be received and be at work in the lives of people around us. We see evidence of that all the time, and we long to be a part of that all the more. So in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we're going to move into a time of uh, communion now. And... Um, if you have your communion supplies around and with you, 
feel free to take them as I introduce it by reading this Corinthians passage again. If you um, don't have communion, the next time you eat a big meal with your family, do so in remembrance of King Jesus, who became a real human being, who died a physical death in real time and space and history to make it possible for us to be a community, for us to be made new. And so I read from Corinthians every time I preach, uh, when Paul himself kind of shares about the, this beginning of the Lord's Supper, because it helps us to look backwards in history to remember the most important thing that has ever happened in history and to, to make it possible for us to receive forgiveness from the Lord. And it looks forward to the day that the Lord will return. And so it contextualizes our present time as a time of remembering Jesus and longing for Jesus. So when we do communion, we preach the gospel. It says this, the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took a loaf of bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Take a moment to remember that and take communion if you have it. <clears throat> 